if you do cross that line, you are basically putting yourself in a, in a horrible position uh, for absolutely no reward. Stand with your brothers and sisters and don't make that bad decision. They want us to make sure we're greeting customers, make sure the store is in perfect condition, make sure we're getting drinks out in under a minute, but we don't have the manpower to do that. Of course, as adults, we're saying, well, it's better. These kids are safe and they're in a better place right now. But to the kiddos, that stuff doesn't matter. Put away your cynicism for just a minute, right, and your realism, and say, okay, what if class harmony was possible? What would that look like? You're listening to the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. I'm Chris Garlock. With just days left before the expiration of the contract covering some 340,000 UPS workers, the Roswell Hub Podcast reports on what's going on and what to do if the Teamsters strike. The Speaking of Work podcast has been on an extended hiatus, but it's on the way back, reports host and producer John McCurley. Today, we've got a clip from a short podcast he did on a picket line at Starbucks in Iowa City. What are the unique challenges of children in the foster system, and how can we support these students in our schools? A deep dive by the OEA Grow podcast from the Oregon Education Association. In our final segment, Thomas Castillo discusses his book, Working in the Magic City, on the Working History podcast. Castillo's book traces Miami's working class history from World War I to the mid-1930s. Our bonus track today is from Labor History in Two where we'll hear about the day municipal workers in Cleveland, Louisville, and Philadelphia walked off the job. That's all ahead on this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Here's the show. What is going on, everybody? So today I have Greg Kerwood out of Local 25 in Boston and Richard Hooker, Principal Officer of 63 in Philadelphia. And this is going to be a contract update. You know, we have 29 days left, less than a month on this current contract. And there's so many questions people have, and we're here to answer them. Now let's get into the strike pay. Uh, I'm going to throw this to you, Rich. Uh, Strike pay, how does it work? Strike pay is five times your dues rate per per week. So uh, let's say you pay $100 in dues per month. Times that by five, you'll be getting a check for $500 a week. Some locals have um, another strike fund or a local strike fund, and that could be whatever the bylaws say, whatever the executive board votes on, and so you would have to check your um, with your local to see if there is a local strike fund. We have one here in 623. Um, it's almost, I believe it's uh, close to a million dollars. When we first got in office, it was about 400000 But we wanted to make sure that we had more money because we knew this day was going to come with this 2023 contract. So we wanted to be prepared. So we increased it to about a million dollars. So uh, whatever your local has, um, get with them to see if they have one. But for as the national strike pay, it is five times your dues rate um, per week. So whatever your dues rate is that you pay a month, times that by five, and that's what you're going to get per week. All right. And so the other question is with these right-to-work states where some people, unfortunately, are not a part of the union, 
Uh, do they get their strike pay, Greg? Uh, they do not get their strike pay because they are not members of the Teamsters Union and they will not be getting uh, strike pay. Um, you know, the, the, the strike fund is funded. Uh, it has been for two decades now uh, by part of our dues money. Um, and so you're not paying any dues in. You're clearly not going to be able to take any money out uh, as, as part of the strike benefit. Um, I just wanted to point out, too, uh, with what Rich just talked about, because there are a lot of folks out there that uh, deal with this. If you are paying weekly dues, uh, which a lot of our locals do, um, in order to calculate your monthly dues, you have to multiply that by four. Um, then you can multiply by five to get your strike pay. Um, I know there's a lot of members out there that I've spoken to that, that pay dues weekly and are confused by uh, how the strike pay works. Okay, and then the other question I have is that we're talking about non-dues paying members, but then let's lead that into scabs, people that cross the picket line. What exactly happens to them if you cross? Well, you have the option that the, the local itself can find you. Uh, they can pull you before the board and pull your card if they choose. Um, in addition to that, uh, you know, you scab once, you're a scab for life. Uh, so, you know, you're going to have to deal with the repercussions of that uh, with your coworkers. Uh, I think anybody who was around in 97 will tell you that they still remember every person that crossed that line. Um, I have had members uh, that I met in person uh, point out to me the scabs from 97, um, and they still do not speak to them, uh, you know, 25 years later. Uh, so it's, uh, it's not a great decision. Uh, it's been pointed out before. I think we have that, uh, there won't be any work for you to do, uh, if you do cross that line anyway. So you are basically, uh, you know, uh, putting yourself in a, in a horrible position, uh, for absolutely no reward. Um, it's, it's completely not worth it. You know, stand with your brothers and sisters and, uh, and, and, you know, don't make that bad decision. Greg's 100% right. I've been to buildings, and they will point out the 97 scabs every time you could walk in there. So it is, you definitely put a mark on your back for the rest of your life. Um, now, we're going to be talking about – we have a lot of members out there right now. They're all excited for what's to come, but we're a little bit worried about them crossing the line. As far as with printing out maybe strike materials or, or related to strike materials, um, Rich, you want to touch on this for a bit? So you just have to be careful on what you put in the flyer. You don't want to get any misinformation when it comes to striking because it is a very serious, very serious situation. So you want to make sure that whatever information you put on a strike flyer is is accurate. Uh, we have them out here at 623. It talks about strike pay. It talks about your do's and don'ts. talks about what you can do to make sure that everybody's together um, practicing the solidarity. You just want to make sure that whatever you print out, um, you do want to get the company's attention because what we do here is, is big, bold letter strike that catches everybody's attention. But you want to make sure once they're reading it, everything is right because you don't want to give any misinformation with a strike because that could get you in a lot of trouble. And we we don't we don't want any trouble right now. We are close to the finish line. And we don't want anything to break down where it causes more problems than it needs to be. So just be careful what you put on. If you have any questions, get with your local. Get with your local before you put stuff out. All right. Appreciate you guys. Love you. And I'll see you next week. Thank you. Hi, everyone. 
This is John McCurley, host and producer of Speaking of Work. Our show's been gone for a while, and while I'm sorry for that, I also have some really exciting news about upcoming episodes. First, we have at least one episode coming out that explores the long road to the 2021 strike at John Deere, as told through the lives of members of the United Auto Workers Local 450 in Des Moines. Okay, so now that I've hopefully gotten you excited about what's coming up next for our program, I want to leave you with something more. Not a full episode, unfortunately, I can't do that yet. But what I'm calling a speaking of work short. In this case, a short that I recorded last week with Starbucks workers in downtown Iowa City. If you hadn't heard, they recently organized the first unionized Starbucks in Iowa. And now, like Starbucks workers across the country, they're demanding that the company recognize workers' rights and sit down and negotiate a fair contract. Last week, they joined other Starbucks workers from around the country in striking to support LGBTQ rights and to put an exclamation point on those demands for a fair contract. You can find some of my photographs from the strike over on our website at iowalaborhistory.org. So now, while we're all getting ready for the next chapter of Speaking of Work, I hope you enjoy our first short, Iowa City Starbucks Workers, Striking with Pride. My name is Abigail Shutman. I'm one of the organizers with Starbucks Workers United, and I'm here striking with pride because Starbucks refuses to negotiate with us and won't let us put up pride decorations. Today we are saying, um, come sit down and bargain with us for a contract. We don't like that they're still trying to make changes to our store without bargaining. We're unionized. It's our right to say we want to put up pride decorations and we want to support not only LGBTQ workers in our store, but in the whole community, because they support us and we want to return that support. Uh, I'm Luis Ispiro, and I'm a Starbucks barista here at the uh, downtown Iowa City Starbucks. Uh, all throughout the country, uh, there's tons of Starbucks unionized stores, and throughout this week, uh, we're all going on, on strike to, to support our LGBT baristas because they've been uh, being denied healthcare benefits from Starbucks. And Starbucks uses them in their promotion and in their image and their tokenizing and discriminating against um, all of our LGBT baristas. So we're here for Pride Month to support them. Hi, I'm Dan Daly. Uh, and I'm out here just in solidarity with uh, underpaid workers. Starbucks employees uh, here in Iowa City voted unanimously to form a union. And now that they have got their union, uh, the management refuses to come to the table and negotiate a contract. It's just an example of uh, the ways that small businesses can be unionized and maybe revive the union movement, which ends up uplifting uh, the standard of living for everybody. Jennifer Shear, president of the Iowa City Federation of Labor. We're here to show community support for the Starbucks workers who've unionized right here in downtown Iowa City. They're in a tough struggle to win a first contract from a multi-million dollar corporation that is violating labor law left and right all over the country, retaliating against workers who are exercising their right to unionize and refusing to come sit down at the bargaining table. So uh, workers here are on strike calling on 
their managers to meet them at the bargaining table, um, follow labor law, and we are here to support them um, and call in for that. My name is Jada McDonald. I am a second year master's student in the College of Public Health at the University of Iowa. I'm getting my degree in public health policy and I believe that fair wages is one of the easiest ways to help ensure that people are making enough money to live and live healthily and that's why that I do the work that I do and that's why I think this movement is so important. I do work for Starbucks and um, I have been a partner for four years. I have seen the store go through a lot of different changes um, and I think that it's important that Starbucks is accountable for the things that their partners have to go through and some of the changes that have happened are not equitable or right um, and I just want to see everybody be treated better. It's not making sense. So it's definitely really hard. And I know myself, I have a few other jobs, and I know a lot of other employees have a few other jobs because they can't, they can't give us the hours. They say they can't give us the hours that we need. And that, in turn, leaves us working really shorthanded, especially during the school year. Everybody knows how Iowa City, how busy Iowa City can get. And during the school year, we're working with three, four people. They want us to make sure we're greeting customers, make sure the store is in perfect condition, make sure we're getting drinks out in under a minute, but we don't have the manpower to do that. It's, it's, it just doesn't make sense. No contract! Hello, and welcome back to OEA Grow, a podcast that explores the connections between educators and the communities they serve. I'm your host, Beth Aidlott, and we're very fortunate to have Colleen Ariola with us today to discuss the very special connections educators can have with students who are in the foster system. As we begin our conversation, Colleen, will you Tell us a bit about yourself and how you entered into the education field. Sure. Thanks um, for having me. Um, I uh, teach fifth grade. Uh, This is my second year of teaching. I'm a new teacher, very new teacher, but I'm not a young teacher. I finished my bachelor's degree um, when I was 50 and got my master's degree a couple years later um, because prior to that I was raising uh, 10 kids and um, the interesting thing is my kids are all from a variety of backgrounds because I have three birth children and seven adopted from the foster system. What do we as educators need to know about children who are in that foster system? Okay Um, they think that the most important thing that teachers need to understand is that these kids are um, currently in trauma. I mean, a lot of kids have trauma, but these kids are currently in the middle of trauma. Um, So the difference of the trauma for the kids in the system is that these kids have lost everything. 
and everyone that they have ever known. Um, possibly temporarily, but they don't know and nobody really knows if it's temporary or if it's permanent. So um, they're taken from their families and these kiddos, they don't, they don't really understand um, about the parents um, doing anything wrong or anything, their biological parents, I mean. Um, they just know that they are taken away from everything and everybody they've ever known and everything that's familiar um, in their life and put into a place that's strange. I mean, it could be a really great home that they're put into, but um, it's kind of irrelevant for these kids because it's so different. The smells are different. The noise level's different. The food, everything is different. Um, and of course, as adults, we're saying, well, it's better. These kids are safe and they're in a better place right now. But to the kiddos, that stuff's not doesn't matter. Um, all they are thinking is, you know, they don't have their people and their stuff around them because their lives are completely turned upside down. And these kids are in our schools and these kids are um, required, of course, to go to school. So they could be right in the middle of this big, huge life transition and be in school. Before you were telling me the example of one of your daughters, I believe, who was having trouble sitting still. Could you please tell us that story again? It's, it's perfect. Yes. I love that story because, um, my daughter, Dakota, who's an adult now, she was one of the first two that we adopted. She was four when we, I like, we, I say when we got her, when we got them, that's how we talk about when we get our children's. So when we got her at four, um, then she was a wild child, um, because she had been in several placements in and out of her biological home that was in major chaos. Um, there's, you know, a lot of other effects there, the things that she went through. Um, so she was pretty out of control. Um, but she was, she was trying, she was trying really hard to, to not to keep herself calm all the time. And so, um, it was kindergarten. I went to her kindergarten class when she was five and, um, the, I was I was there as like an observer. The parents were there to kind of watch how the kids were doing in their class. And um, the teacher was on the carpet with the class reading a story, and the kids were engaged in what the teacher was saying. But Dakota, which was sitting on the rug, crisscross applesauce, and and her hands were like clamped together and shoved down in in her lap, and and. She was rocking, kind of rocking back and forth on, on, just kept turning around and looking at me and turning around and then looking at the teacher and looking at me and kind of fidgeting, but keeping her hands in her lap and keeping herself as still as she could, which was a real struggle for her. And she was having a hard time keeping still. Um, and then the teacher got done reading the story and um, she ran over to me and she's like, mom, mom, did you see how good I was sitting? And um, I mean... Then it just dawned on me right then and there that that child, that was her such a focus, was paying so close attention to how she was sitting so nicely to hear the story that she didn't hear one word of the story. <laughs> she didn't hear any of the story, not a word the teacher said, um, because her focus was so big and her energy and every bit of her little body was taken up by 
concentrating on sitting nicely the way she was supposed to be sitting on the rug. Thank you so much, Colleen, for being with us today and for reminding us that our children, our students don't always leave the classroom to return to a comfortable, stable environment. Hi, I'm series co-host Dave Anderson, and I'm with Tom Castillo, live from Los Angeles at the Organization of American Historians annual conference. Um, Tom Castillo is the author of Working in the Magic City, a labor history about Miami, Florida during the interwar years. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for having me, Dave. All right, it's my pleasure. You really had to work hard on this book, and, and it, it shows. Now, here's the big question, though. We're a Southern Labor Studies podcast, and we're part of the Southern Labor Studies Association. And the one thing, you know, people who study or think of Miami is, is you know, and Southern Florida in general, is that it's somewhat outside the South, that based on its demographic composition based on its primary industries, you know, service, resort, tourism, that it's not a part of Southern history. It doesn't have the same racial dynamics. It doesn't have the same industrial components to it. And yet I come away from this book <laughs> convinced that Miami in the interwar years, this is Southern history. Could you talk about that for a second? No doubt, no doubt. And that's one of the things I have to sort of do in the book is to dislodge people's ideas about Miami of the present. Because mm -hmm. I think Miami of the present might fall within that framework mm -hmm. because it's uh, more of a, the capital of Latin America and the Caribbean, right? It's a sort of, I don't, I don't mean to diss those other, other locations, Absolutely. but that there's a, a lot of movement and travel between these regions. And you can sort of see that happening beginning with with the rise of airplanes and, and air travel in the 40s and afterwards. And so that changes sort of the, the trajectory of, of, you know, the centering of, of Miami. But I think up to like the 1940s, the center of Miami is really in the south. And I think the leadership is there, like E.G. Sewell, who was a, a Chamber of Commerce president and then mayor several times in Miami. He's from Georgia. Mm -hmm. And so this, this, and I highlight how the plurality of Miamians are southern. Mm -hmm. And so on page two of my introduction, I highlight how, you know, E.G. Sewell and others from the Chamber of Commerce stated clearly they didn't want Miami to become like Tampa, mm -hmm. which they didn't want a Cuban or other kind of immigrant population there. They wanted Miami to be a certain kind. In fact, they stated clearly that they wanted to protect tourism there. So they were trying to protect a certain kind of southern hospitality, a southern kind of uh, tourist experience that was embedded in a safe notion of the exotic, I think, so. All right. You know, one of, one of the, um, your main concepts here um, that we see is this idea that the boosters promote class harmony. And could you just explain what that term means? I'm sure everyone who studied labor history has have have come across it, but it, but it's a very central theme in the book. How how would you describe it? Well, I would say that my approach to class harmony was to sort of look at it as a point of contestation and a point of also of hopeful politics. Mm -hmm. So let's let's just for a moment to state what if it's possible. 
put away your cynicism for just a minute, right? And, and your realism and say, okay, what if class harmony was possible? What would that look like? Mm-hmm. And that, that's where I found the roots of the possibility of moral economy. Mm-hmm. And that's where you could kind of see the sort of the nature of how workers, labor unions were pushing for a living wage for shorter hours. And when I discovered, for example, that carpenters were getting double pay for working overtime, and I discovered this in the carpenters' records in, in the University of Miami, uh, Maryland sort of national archives, I was shocked to see that that was something that was possible. Because usually I've underst- we've all understand the overtime to be time and a half, but that was double overtime and you know, double pay. So what that suggested to me was that they were making a claim. If you want us to work extra under this hot summer weather, you're going to have to pay us a lot more. So it's going to be, it, it got me pushing, pushing my thinking about moral economy as a way to understand the 20th century. Now, as far as the boosters, yeah, they, they embraced that hokey-sounding um, framework of, of class harmony, but essentially accepting and embracing a very stark class hierarchy. And so the end of like chapter one, for example, I quote this, dial- this kind of dialogue between these two uh, preachers, one who sort of advocated for a social hierarchy that God had apparently uh, you know, accepted and, and said humans should, uh, should adopt, another who, another who accepted a more egalitarian perspective. And while that may not have been linked necessarily to any of the discourses or the battles that were going on, to me it was symbolic of that very dynamic that was occurring as far as trying to make this a, a city that was for workers, trying to deal with a, a city that was not yet quite developed and trying to fight with community, mm-hmm. a developed community, while at the same time dealing with a population that often was not caring what was actually happening there, the tourists that were coming in, that floating population that was going out, even the temporary workers that were working there. So it seemed to me it was infused with so much class tension, which was completely missing from, from the storyline. So class harmony is, is a vehicle in, in many ways mm-hmm. to understand and unpack class uh, in some place like I think the South and it seemed to make a southern city uh, like Miami mm-hmm. with this sort of tropical dynamic and perhaps probably the case for other parts of, 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 uh, of Florida I would mm-hmm. say thank you for joining us Tom. thank you so much Dave it's been really a pleasure talking to you all right thank you I'm Rick Smith and this is labor history in two On this day in labor history, the year was 1978. That was the day municipal workers in Cleveland, Louisville, and Philadelphia walked off the job. That summer was rocked with public sector strikes, starting with a firefighter strike in Memphis. In Cleveland, municipal services came to a virtual halt as city workers honored a police work stoppage. In Louisville, firefighters walked off the job after the Kentucky Labor Relations Board found the city guilty of unfair labor practices. And in Philadelphia, 20,000 AFSCME members, including sanitation, highway, and health department workers, rejected a last-minute contract offer. They demanded wage increases, but they were also furious when the city announced it would have to lay off city workers to pay an arbitration award to the police. Sanitation strikes soon followed in New Orleans, San Antonio, Detroit, and Tuscaloosa. By the third week of July, transit workers in Washington, D.C. staged a wildcat strike, as did postal workers in California and New Jersey. Labor historian Joseph McCartan notes that public sector strikes peaked in 1975 and again in 1978. By the late 1970s, the volatile recipe of rising public sector union militancy, inflation, and anti-tax reform made public sector unions more vulnerable than at any other time. 
Suddenly, the union became a convenient scapegoat for public officials dealing with declining relative tax revenues, demands for improved public services, and taxpayer unrest. McCartan adds that by 1978, public employers came out swinging in labor disputes. Public sector unions would struggle to hold their own in an increasingly hostile environment as their ability to strike was being severely eroded. The backlash against public sector militancy set the stage for President Reagan's smashing of the PATCO union just three years later. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly. Just a small sample of the programs aired last week on nearly 200 labor radio and podcast shows. They're all part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network, shows that focus on working people's issues and concerns. We've got links to all the network shows at laborradionetwork.org, and you can also find them by using the hashtag LaborRadioPod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Labor Radio Podcast Weekly was edited this week by Patrick Dixon. I produced the show and our social media guru, is Mr. Harold Phillips. For the Labor Radio Podcast Weekly, this is Chris Garlock urging you to stay active and, of course, stay tuned to your local Labor Radio Podcast show. <laughs>